0: Turn to Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, I'm going to be looking at verses 13 through 31, so Mark 10, 13 through 31. I want to ask you a question here at the outset, and the question is, what are you a member of? What are you a member of? What group, what club, what team, what organization do you consider yourself a member of? And what, second question, what makes you a member of that group or a member of those particular groups? What does your membership consist of? What is the nature of your membership? My, my guess is that in most cases, membership is something that is, that is limited, that's, that's reserved for, for the few, for, for the favored, and in some cases it's, it's reserved for the wealthy, those who can pay the price. So here, here's a couple examples that I, that I thought of. First, think about a sports team. I remember in middle school and in high school, some of these were good memories, some were bad memories, but I remember having to try out for a sports team. Okay, it wasn't you just showed up for, for the first day and you're automatically on the team. There were tryouts. And so whether it was golf or basketball or baseball, I remember cut day when outside of the coach's office on, on the glass there'd be a list of names. And dozens of individuals would feel the pain of, of not making it, of being on the outside. They weren't good enough. It was limited. Or, on a, on a happier note, think about Costco. <laughs> Membership at Costco, in, in my humble opinion, is one of the greatest things in the world. Okay? As a member, I get access to bulk quantities of everything, whether it's chocolate chips or laundry detergent or paper towels, I get discounted prices on furniture and tires, books, clothes, and even cruises. And best of all, I get lunch, a hot dog and a drink for $1.50. <laughs> but if you're not a member, you can't have that, right? you got to pay your annual membership rates. It's not open to just anyone. Or think about the military, being part of the military and its, and its network, its family, has numerous perks. I've, I've spent my entire life hearing about the commissary and the BX. If there's ever a need, my grandmother would say, let's go to the BX. Go with me to the base. I'm sure they have it. They love my, my, my grandmother and grandfather. They love the benefits offered to them because my grandfather served in the Air Force. They love the doctors in the hospital. My, they will not go anywhere else, even if the wait list is months. They're going to the base. And I can't experience that, at least not firsthand like them. It's it's limited to those who've served in their immediate families. And these are just a few examples, and I'm I'm sure that you've come up with others. But but my point in all of this is simply to say that membership normally has qualifications, even if it's something as simple as signing your name somewhere. There's a requirement. It's not not open to everyone. There are requirements, expectations. And this morning in our passage... We're going to see that membership in the kingdom of God is no different, that there are, that there are expectations and, and membership includes some, and therefore, because of the nature of membership, necessarily excludes others. The kingdom of God is no different. There are those who are included and those who are not. And so the, the requirements, we're going to see this morning, the nature of kingdom membership. So, So look at our passage. Turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 13 through 31. So that, that's our passage. So if you're there, follow along, and I'll begin reading in Mark 10, verse 13. I'm going to read all the way through verse 31. So you can follow along. Mark 10, beginning of verse 13. And they were bringing children to him, that is to Jesus, that they might touch them, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. For 17, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up, ran up and knelt before him, and he asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Disheartened by the saying, he, that is the man, went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Verse 23, and Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and he said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and and we followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life? But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Well, we got quite a, quite a ways to go. So, so let's let's look first right at, at the first section. I've, I've divided up into into four sections, and so we have. Verses 13 through 16 is section 1. Kingdom membership requires dependence, we'll see. Then, then number 2, kingdom membership. Kingdom members treasure God above all else. That's verses 17 through 22. Then verses 23 through 27, kingdom, kingdom membership is impossible without God. And then lastly, verses 28 through 31, we see the costs and benefits of kingdom membership. So let's look first at, at number 1, uh, bullet 1. Kingdom membership requires Dependence, And so first, look, look down there at verse 15. Because right at the outset, I want you to see that Jesus sets limitations on those who may, who may or may not enter the kingdom. But you see there in verse 15, he says, "...whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child," what? "...shall not enter it." Do you see the, there's limitations right there? Membership or interest into the kingdom of God requires one to receive the kingdom of God like a child. That, that's, that's what he's laying out. That's, that's the, the equation. Now obviously, that's just the first step, right? We need some more information because that can mean a lot of things. So, so we need more information, but we at least see that there is a limitation that, that if you don't receive it like a child, you shall not enter it. So let's, let's look at the context to see, well, what does it mean to receive the kingdom like a child? So look at the context. This scene opens up with, with parents bringing their children to Jesus, and they're bringing them for, for a purpose. They, they want Jesus, this teacher, this miracle worker, to, to touch their kids, to bless them, this wasn't uncommon. I mean, th- this happened often in the time. I mean, think about um, the Pope. Whenever he visits somewhere, there, there's always babies or, or even a president. Always people, the, these key influential leaders where were parents, for some reason, they want these leaders to touch or to bless their kids. This, this is what's happening here. Parents are bringing their children to Jesus, hoping for a blessing. And so they come to Jesus, but, but notice there at the end of verse 13, what happens? The disciples rebuked them. The disciples rebuke them, no, 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 too close, stay back. The disciples rebuke these parents and then probably these children, these children for trying to get to Jesus. It's as if they're playing the role of bodyguard or, or secret service agent. They, they decide, okay, here's a threat, stop it, prevent them, you guys stop coming. Now, we don't know for sure why the disciples did this. We don't, we're not given a reason. Perhaps they're tired of the crowds overwhelming Jesus, Right, maybe that, that was a common occurrence, and, and we've seen, at least in the immediate context, Jesus is trying to get alone. So maybe they're trying to help Jesus. No, 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 th- th- this is too much. Too many people around. Perhaps they thought that they were preserving his privacy. Whatever the reason, it's clear that the disciples, they were wrong in what they did. Right? We know that because of Jesus' response. They were not acting as Jesus' representatives. Rather, they were, they were acting against Jesus and his purposes. It seems as though they're they exercising authority that they didn't have in deciding who could and couldn't come. Right? They say, well, no, no, these guys aren't okay. These kids, children, they're exercising authority that, that we see they don't have. And so verse 14, when Jesus saw it, it doesn't go over well with Jesus. He was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So the disciples intervene, they rebuke, and Jesus rebukes them, really, saying to, yeah, He's indignant. Don't do that. Let them come. And the reason, to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus, in this moment, is a teaching moment. He's teaching his disciples and, and everyone else a lesson about kingdom membership. Kingdom membership belongs to such as these. In fact, whoever does not receive the kingdom like these children, examples, shall not enter it. We might say childlikeness is a requirement for membership in the kingdom. That, that I think we can, it's safe to say that so far. That's the point Jesus is making that childlikeness is a requirement. So our question then becomes well, what is the childlikeness that he's talking about? I've often heard it said that childlikeness has to do with, with the pure or the, the, the unadulterated faith of, of children, this, this pure faith. And, and they just simply believe whatever you tell them without question. Some people say that's what Jesus was talking about. Or maybe they'll say childlikeness means that that it's this this idea of innocence or this purity. And that's the point that Jesus is making in in terms of childlikeness. Well, I guess these are possible explanations. Um, I would simply say one thing in my experience, most children, at least my children, are not always pure, innocent, and certainly don't not question things with innocent faith. I don't know what children you're talking about when you suggest that. I don't think that's the point Jesus wants us to come away with. Okay, I don't think that's the childlikeness that, that he's talking about. I don't think that's the membership requirement. Instead, think about last week's passage. Do you remember what we talked about last week with divorce and remarriage? One of the things that we said was that in the, that culture, women were taken advantage of. They, they, were, they were not offered much protection. They are discarded as possessions. Okay, they, they could be used and taken advantage of. Well, the same could be said of children. I think this is why this passage follows immediately on the heels of that one. Children had no rights. They had no voice. They were inconvenienced often. Children were totally dependent upon the will of others. They had no legal or social weight to make claims for particular treatment. Right? They, they had no voice. And even, just think about this immediate passage, the children seemed to be at the mercy of those bringing them, their parents, their caregivers. They didn't decide to come see Jesus for a blessing they don't wake up and say, hey, hey mom and dad, let's, let's go see that rabbi. I want to be blessed. No, they are at the mercy of their parents. They can't feed themselves, work for themselves, bathe themselves. They can't communicate, at least clearly they can't communicate. They are dependent 100% of the time. And this, I think, is the childlikeness that Jesus is wanting us to notice. I think it's the objectively humble position in society that Jesus has in mind when he means that one must take the position of a child. Do you see? It's, it's this, this cultural status of, of nothingness, no privilege, no, no place, no, no, unable to make demands and dependent upon God. There's this, uh, this, this state of dependence. One commentator says that the demand that a man become as a little child calls for a fresh realization that he is utterly helpless in his relationship to the kingdom. Utterly helpless. The kingdom is that which God gives which man receives. Do You see, there's a dependence on God doing it, giving. And so, so the, the childlikeness is they receive as one dependent on God giving. Jesus' point is that whoever would enter the kingdom of God, whoever would want to be a member in the kingdom, must come as a child in the sense that their membership is marked by dependence and understood in significance. And there's no social status for the children. That's what Jesus is saying. If you want to be part of the, the kingdom, you've got you to have that attitude. That mindset, I mean, I thought about the dozens of panhandlers that, that occupy the numerous intersections throughout Hampton. Right on a daily basis, you can see them. Right? And I thought about them. Think, think about what you want about them, okay, and what they're doing. But I think they're representative of what Jesus is going for in the sense that they have no power, or at least the appearances, they have no power, no prestige, no physical status. It's a humbling thing to stand on a corner and ask for money. And so we all, if we want to be members in the kingdom of God, must come with that similar attitude of helplessness, of dependence on God. And so a simple point of application right here, as, as we, we pause, is, is simply, we bring our nothing. So that's a song, so I use that, that line there. But we bring our nothing when it comes to membership in the kingdom of God. Our membership in the kingdom of heaven is based 100% on God. Now, when it comes to math, right, when 100% is taken, that leaves what percentage for us? Zero. Nothing. We bring nothing. Notice Jesus' words, even in verse 15, the kingdom is received. It's not worked for as if it could be earned. It's not deserved. We come to the kingdom recognizing our dependence upon God for entrance. One, This passage, it encapsulates the essence of of salvation. It, It encapsulates the essence of the gospel itself. Right? We come to Christ when we reach an end of ourselves. There's a necessary humility. We are turning to someone other than ourselves, and we're turning to Christ. That's the gospel. That's, that's what in, what's encapsulated here in the childlikeness. We receive this kingdom. It's dependent on God. We are dependent. Now, before we look at the next section, I, I just want to make a comment about there in verse 16. You see in verse 16 where Jesus, after he rebukes them and, and, and teaches Says, makes a statement, it takes he takes them in his arms and he blesses them, laying his hands on them. So so he gives the children what they came for. Right? So he receives them, brings them in his arms. Now, so the significance of this passage is what I've just said: that, that the childlikeness, the dependence that's necessary. But I, I also think that this passage does show Jesus' genuine compassion and concern for the children. I think that is an application that, that we see Jesus showing care for the children who don't, are not seen as significant in that culture. So he welcomes them. He says, no, disciples, they're not a burden. Let them come to me. I mean, that, that shows us the heart of Jesus in caring specifically for children. In a world where, where children weren't valued and weren't seen as significant, Jesus takes time to welcome them and bless them. And, and so Jesus is countercultural. But what I don't think this passage does is give evidence for the doctrine of infant baptism. Right? I was amazed at how many commentators, guys who take the Bible seriously, who, who come to this passage and use it as support for infant baptism. The logic goes, because Jesus welcomed the children, we should baptize them. And I want to say, wait a minute, you're missing something. One commentator, let me just look, this, this is a, a well-known commentator. He, he's old, old, old. But here's what he said. He said, of course, it is not pretended that there is any mention of baptism or, any, or even any reference to it in the verses before us. To which I'd say, yeah, nothing, no reference, nothing. It's not about baptism at all. But he continues, all we mean to say is that the expressions and gestures of our Lord in this passage are a strong indirect argument in favor of infant baptism. I'll say, you've missed the boat on that one, right? This is not about baptism at all. So I simply want to say... The, the, you don't get infant baptism from this passage. I think we can say, yes, there's concern for, for children, that Jesus expresses concern. And we should. We should learn from that. But I don't think we have to go as far as to say we should baptize infants. I think children come in the same way as adults. And upon faith and repentance, they come to Christ and are baptized. We can talk. If you have questions, issues about that, we'll talk about that afterwards. Just don't go to this verse if you, wanna, if you want me to baptize your child. So, so, second, let's look at number two. Kingdom members treasure God above everything else, verses 17 through 22. So, immediately following this, this interchange between Jesus and these children, right, who we say modeled utter dependence, okay, they, they model this utter dependence that kingdom membership re- requires. Jesus encounters a man who's on the total opposite end of the spectrum. So, we've seen children who are dependent on their parents, that they, they exemplify this, this dependence. Well, here's a man who knows nothing about dependence, Okay, so, so this is a totally opposite end of the spectrum. So notice verse 17 the man approaches Jesus and respectfully kneels down before him. So he comes up to him, he kneels, and he says, Good teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? Now, now as I initially was reading through this passage, I, I assumed that this man was not really wanting to know the answer to that question. So I assumed he's he's just a proud guy. He knows that he's good. He's qualified, and he just wants to to put himself on display. I don't think he really cares about this question. I think he wants Jesus to to admit that he's good. That's that's what I thought. That's what I assumed in just reading. But I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the attitude of this man. And here's why. Look down at verse 21. See there in verse 21, after the exchange, okay, before Jesus lays out the one thing this man lacks, Mark records that Jesus looked at him and what? Loved him. He said Jesus loved him. In other words, I think this man is genuine in his question. I think he's genuine in his answers to Jesus' question about the Ten Commandments, about the law. I think he's he's genuine. He really wants to know how to inherit eternal life. And the fact that he even is coming asking shows there's something missing. He's done all this, but but he's still coming asking, what must I do? Because there's something lacking. So, So he's lacking something. He wants to know what to do. And Jesus loves him. In fact, he loves him too much to let him go on thinking incorrectly about the kingdom, right? His love doesn't lead him to say, no, you're good, buddy. Go, go on your way. He loves him too much to let him go thinking incorrectly about the kingdom and his ability to enter it. So Jesus challenges this man's thinking. He disrupts or provokes this man's assurance. But first, he he, he wants to level the playing field and make sure that they're thinking on, on the same plane. So look there at verse 18. So he comes to him, good teacher, what must I do? And Jesus responds, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And we would say, wait a minute, what's Jesus, what is he talking about? I mean, this is a confusing statement, right? What does Jesus mean? Is he saying that, that he's not good, that, that he's just a normal, sinful man who lacks the goodness as this man seems to recognize? Is, is Jesus saying he's not God? Is this a Christological statement? Has the church missed this for centuries? I mean, there's lots of potential questions and issues, but I, I think the point of Jesus' question, it's not to say something about himself. It's not a Christological statement. He, he's not concerned. He's not making a statement about himself. Rather, the point is for Jesus to challenge this man's categories of thinking. This man thinks that good is a human quality possessed by those who qualify for the kingdom. I think, that, I think that's his good, goodness is, is a common human thing. So, you're a good teacher, I'm a good man. And Jesus at the outset is saying, no, 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 no. You don't understand goodness. No one is good. Goodness is not a human quality. It belongs to God and God alone. There's no one who is good. And, and so then notice how, how the conversation continues there in verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, you know the commandments... You know them, don't murder, don't commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. So Jesus lays out these, these commands, and, and the man responds, teacher, all of these I've kept from my from my youth. I've done all this. I got the law. I've got it checked. I mean, it's similar to, to Paul's righteousness on account of the law, righteous account on account of the law. And in Philippians, his biographical section there, he says, uh, in, in, in terms of the law, I, I was perfect. I kept the law perfectly. I think this man has done this. He really believes this. I don't think he's being proud and arrogant. I think, again, he's being genuine. He truly believes he's kept all the Ten Commands for his entire adult life. And I think that this law-keeping is a foundation of his perceived goodness. He thinks he's good, and he thinks that he's going to inherit the kingdom because he's kept all the laws. And that's exactly the problem. That's, just, that's exactly a problem. Remember the previous verses. Kingdom, kingdom membership requires on what? Dependence. Dependence on God alone. And here we come to this man. In this case, he wants to enter the kingdom. He thinks that he's good and he thinks that what he's done is good enough to, to, to enter him or to secure entrance into the kingdom. And hopefully the problem with that is, is clear. If the kingdom is given to the man who keeps all the laws, right? where's the childlike dependence upon God? Right? Where is it? I just got what I deserved. I don't need God. I've kept all the laws. Right? The kingdom is no longer humbly received. It's simply earned, which goes against everything that Jesus has been teaching. Human goodness, no matter how good, cannot earn the kingdom. It just can't. Maybe, maybe you need to hear that this morning. All right? Maybe you're sitting there. You're satisfied in your state before God. Are you, are you comfortably resting on your own goodness I mean, is that you this morning think, I'm good? I'm good? Surely, you may be thinking, God, God will grant me entrance. I'm, I'm not as bad as, as him or her. I'm not as bad as them. Well, this morning, hear this truth. You're not good. You're not good enough. No one is, you cannot earn the kingdom. If you're, if you're dependent on your ability to earn, friend, you will be sorely disappointed. Good is not a category that humanity qualifies you for. So hear that. There's good news for you, though. There's good news for you because, because God is good and God has made a way. We'll see that in a second. But, but, but back to here. Look at verse 21. There's an even bigger problem than, than this man's understanding of, of, of keeping the laws. Look at verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and he said to him, You lack one thing. Okay, one thing. Here's what you're going to do. Go, sell all that you have, and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. Now again, lots of questions, a lot of things that could be said. Why, why does Jesus say, you lack one thing, and then he tells them to do four things? Do you notice that? You lack one thing. Now here's, here's a list of four things to do. What, what, is, what is Jesus talking about? What is the one thing? Another question, are, are disciples supposed to sell all that they have? Does that mean that we just bought a house? Is that a, is that a problem? Right? We're not selling, we're, we're buying. Is that a problem? Uh, and, and, and many more questions that I'd love to talk with you about afterwards, okay? But, but I think here, in order to understand the meaning of this, of this exchange, I only think it's necessary for us to identify what's the one thing, okay? What's the one thing lacking, If right, so the question is, okay, how do I inherit t- eternal life? And this resume has already been laid out and has a successful keeping of the commandments, or at least this man thinks a successful keeping of the commandments. The one thing lacking is the missing piece to, et- to inherit eternal life. It's the missing piece to eternal life solution. So so the one thing is important because that's what's lacking. Do you see the the significance of the one thing? He says, there's one thing you lack. So we need to know, what what is the one thing? It's not complicated. So here, here, do you remember what we just saw back in verses 13 through 16? I think that's the one thing. I think that's the one thing. That's the context. I think it helps us understand the one thing is is dependence on God that was just exemplified by the kids. This man was not dependent on God. He was dependent on his law-keeping, he was dependent on his riches, but he wasn't dependent on God. And so when, when Jesus says, you lack this one thing, and he gives him instructions on how to show his dependence on God, he can't do it. Look at verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. Why? For he had many possessions. Jesus pinpointed the one area where this means dependence was the strongest. He went straight for the heartstrings. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor. I mean, that's a a hard thing to do, especially for a man who has great possessions. Jesus simply called this man to a life of self-denying dependence on God. That's that's his call, self-denying dependence. Give up all that you hold dear, friend. Give up all your earthly possessions. Get rid of them. Sell them. But notice there was a promise, wasn't there? Sell them, and you will have treasures in heaven. It's not just give it up, just to just to lose it. I, I'm, I'm a pain, pain. I, I want you to suffer loss. No, that that's not it. It's it's loss for the sake of gain. Sell it all for you'll have treasures in heaven. You see, this man was was so dependent upon his riches, he couldn't imagine getting on in life without them. Do you see that? He couldn't imagine getting on in life without them. He loved his riches, his wealth, his possessions. And he loved them so much that he would risk losing God for the sake of keeping them. Do you see that? He he risks losing God. He walks away. He'll lose God for the sake of keeping his possessions. Which, that's the bigger problem. This man's riches had a hold on his heart. He, He had built his life in opposition to the most important command, hadn't he? He didn't love God with all his heart. He loved his stuff. He didn't keep the law, did he? He had missed the first one, the most important one. He loved his stuff and didn't love God. So in, pi- so in spite of his apparent law-keeping, he'd missed the whole point. And the most pressing issue was that he loved his possessions in such a way that he would risk losing God for the sake of keeping them. And that's what he does. He walks away. Brother, sister, if you're a Christian, this ought never be the case for us. In fact, I would argue this this is never the case for a true disciple of Christ. Following Christ, being being a member of the kingdom of God, is about our allegiance. It's it's about our hearts, about our love, our worship. And our allegiance, our love, our worship of God ought not to be rivaled. It ought not to be rivaled. In the interaction with this wealthy man, the point is the man's love for riches over his love for God. That's the point. And his trust in those riches instead of his humble dependence on God—that's that, what we ought to see. Members of God's kingdom, followers of Christ, willingly part with all earthly goods for the sake of having God. Let goods and kindreds go. This moral life also. Let the body they may kill, but what God's truth abideth still. His kingdom, how long is it? Forever. And that's a gr- great reformation hymn written by Martin Luther. Let goods and kindreds. Goods and kindred, let them go. This mortal life, let it go too. Why? There's a kingdom that is going to far outlive any and every good and kindred that we will ever have on this earth. God and his kingdom drive us as followers of Christ. God and his kingdom, it it shapes our perspective, it shapes our priorities, it, it shapes our love. Members of God's kingdom love God in such a way that they would risk losing any and everything For the sake of keeping him. Do you see the difference between the follower of Christ and this rich young man? We love God and we'll risk losing everything for the sake of having him. Unlike the rich man, the scales of balance aren't close. Those who follow Christ don't walk away disheartened. We follow wholeheartedly. Take this world, but give me Jesus. It's not even close. Well, Jesus, to our third point, and Verses 23 through 27, kingdom membership is impossible without God. Now, these last two sections, just just so you know, they're going to go much faster because they naturally flow from what's come before and they've already been hit on. So first look at verses 23 through 27. So after seeing the young man walk away saddened by by his discussion with Jesus, Mark then shifts the focus back to Jesus and his disciples. And so commenting on on what what has just happened, Jesus says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The point simply being... Wealth presents a great obstacle to dependence on God. And that, that's a simple point. Right? A lot of stuff is a great God substitute. Right? That, this should fall on us here in the West in America a little heavier than other parts of the world. We know the temptations of wealth. Money and possessions, they are great God substitutes. And then verse 24, after Jesus says that, the disciples are amazed. They're amazed, and then Jesus doubles down how difficult it is, not just for a rich man. Notice this second time he says how difficult it is for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I have to say this. There was never a gate or an opening in the wall of Jerusalem called the eye of a needle. I don't know how many times I've heard that. that is, that's not true. Okay? That, that, that defeats the point, right? Jesus is saying it's impossible. Think about a camel and an eye of a needle. Right? Is the camel getting through? No. Some people say, well, no, there's a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle, and and the the camel had to be rid of of all its package, and it had to go through this gate on its knees. Right? The point that Jesus is making is it's not going to happen. So if we say, well, it's it's a gate, and the camel actually got through it. Okay, well, then Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. Right? There's no eye of the needle. Jesus is making a very clear analogy. This thing is not going through here. It is impossible and that's exactly what the disciples understand him to be saying. Look at verse 26. They're exceedingly astonished, and they say, then who can be saved? They get it. Jesus, that, that camel and needle, that's not happening. Are you saying it's impossible for anyone to be saved? Maybe they're still watching this rich young man walk away, and they're thinking, wait a minute, that guy kept all the laws? God had blessed him with all this wealth, and he, he, he wanted to know how to be saved, and, and now Jesus sent him away? Well, who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and he said, verse 27, "With man, it is impossible. You're right. it is impossible. It's not going to happen. With man, it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. The disciples were right to be shocked. Jesus was aiming to illustrate the impossibility of a rich man entering the kingdom. It's not limited to rich men. It's, poss- it's impossible for anyone. And so, notice the equation, the, the solution that, that Jesus offers. Man alone without God cannot be saved. It's impossible. But once God is in the equation, with God, anything is possible, including salvation. Do you see the, the one thing that was lacking? Right? Salvation is dependent on God and God alone. Anyone that's a member in the kingdom of God is a member by way of depending on God wholly for their entrance. We bring our nothing. We're, we're wholly dependent on God. There's no salvation apart from God. There's no salvation apart from complete dependence on God. In fact, that's the theme of Scripture. God is glorified in man's dependence on him. That way, God gets the glory, not man. This is true in salvation in every other area of our life. To think that anyone is capable of eternal life or kingdom membership apart from divine grace, action, and aid, miss, misses the impossibility that Jesus is emphasizing here. But, the good news, the good news, brother and sister, if you're, if you're a Christian, God has made a way, hasn't he? Right? The door's not shut and locked anymore. It's not impossible. Right? The, the eye of the needle has been miraculously expanded. So even a camel, even a camel can get through now. With God, all things are possible. Impossibility is not the only option. So hear that news this morning. If, if you're not a Christian, you don't have to be good enough Right? If, if you're trying on your own, it's impossible, but God has made a way for you in His Son, Christ. Hear that good news. And then lastly, last section, verses 28 through 31, the costs and benefits of kingdom membership. So, so notice, as the passage comes to its close, Jesus lays out the terms and conditions. And, and they're really simple. First, their kingdom membership is costly. That's the terms and conditions, maybe the fine print. Right? It's costly. It often requires loss and even persecution. So in this verse 28, Peter, spokesman for the disciples, just watched this young man walk away, and, and he walked away from Jesus and from the kingdom, the issue being he wouldn't sell all that he had, right? That's the issue. And so Peter says, well, wait a minute, we've left everything, right? We're different from that man, right? Peter wants to make sure we're, we're good, right, Jesus? And for the one, one of the few times in Mark's gospel, the disciples are actually a good example, right? Jesus doesn't say, nope, you haven't, right? He, he doesn't correct Peter, He says, you have. For once in Mark's gospel, disciples serve as a positive example. So Jesus affirms the necessity of loss. That's all he does. He doesn't respond to Peter. He doesn't correct him. But he he affirms the necessity of loss. There's no one who's left. So you see there in verse 29. The cost. You've left everything. So then Jesus lays out, sorry, They've, they've cast off every weight that easily entangles. So in the second part... The, of these terms and conditions are, is there in verse 29, which is the benefit. So there's a cost, but there's also benefit. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, no one who's left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands, this, this whole list of things, no one who's, who's forsaken that for my sake and the sake of my gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold. Now notice a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children's lands, and in the age to come, eternal life. So do you see that the two areas are the two stages of benefits that are guaranteed for those who forsake all. Right? You, there, there's, receiving, there's benefits to receive now in this life. He says that now you're going to receive and then then in the age to come you're going to receive. And so simply Jesus is saying that, that the kingdom membership that, that, that costs you maybe your family your possessions Right, when you, when you become a kingdom member you gain it all back. And it's not the same things but it's a new family. It's new possessions. When following Christ requires forsaking family and friends, disciples will find family and friends in abundance within the kingdom. Within the kingdom. The idea is that, that kingdom membership comes with lots of other citizens. Right? So we're members of this kingdom together, but, but these aren't just citizens like our neighbors that we just wave to when they drive by every once in a while. Right? Maybe you have those. Right? These aren't those type of citizens. These are citizens who are who are family, who are brothers and sisters and mothers, and and have everything in common. These this is a kingdom bond, so that the, a blessing of kingdom membership is is these relationships. Now this church body, but there's also a promise for the age to come, eternal life in the age to come. Earthly possessions and earthly persecutions will be thing of will be a thing of the past. They'll fade away in light of that age, the age to come, the glory at hand. And so Jesus closes his teaching there in the, the final verse, which, which is similar to, if you remember, all the way back in, in Mark nine thirty three when this whole, this whole section started with the disciples arguing about who's the greatest, he's going to this whole, whole section of teaching, and he closes this section by saying, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. First. Kingdom membership following Christ, discipleship requires humility, a humility that recognizes an utter and total dependence on God. I, th- I think that's the point. A humility that recognizes that without God, salvation is impossible. Kingdom membership is for those who know their dependence and who humbly receive the kingdom and inherit eternal life through Christ. May we, may we be people like that. Let's pray. God, we pray, I pray that we may know our utter dependence on you. May we aim as your people to treasure you above all else. May we live lives of thankfulness and humility, recognizing, Father, that that you have accomplished our salvation. That your strong right arm has, has worked out salvation for us. And that we did not deserve it, we didn't earn it. Father, make us your disciples who follow you wholeheartedly. That's in Christ's name I pray, amen.